Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is a return guest, Patrick William Joyce, who is head of sales development at Sapling. Pat's been on before. Uh, many of you, if there's the dog rattling in the background, uh, I'll leave that in. If you've uh, heard Pat's previous podcast, you'll have found that incredibly useful. I've invited him back today because we're going to look at breaking a few myths. First of all, we're going to look at how can you really penetrate an enterprise account deep and wide quickly without breaking the sweat that most people seem to do when they're trying to break into these accounts. And we're also going to look at some of the blind spots that you miss when you're growing an SDR team first off. Pat's going to look at his own experience and how it informed his decision making. And we're going to go dig deep and wide into this as well. So Pat, welcome. Thanks very much, Marcus. Glad to be back. It's always fun chatting with you. I know I can be a hard guy to nail down, but uh, I'm glad that we figured it out. It's always worth it. So, Pat, first of all, just get, for those people who are not familiar to you, your history, would you mind just giving us 60 seconds on your background? Yeah, in 60 seconds, it's it's been such a, a crazy journey that it's hard to cover it all. But I'll, I'll, very briefly, I grew up in Boston in as a laborer with my brother for a few years, helped him build up his company. I was doing essentially demand gen uh, lead generation for him with a Google AdWords campaign, building websites. I didn't know that I was doing marketing at the time. Uh, I'm just used to figuring out how to take people's money. So that's the most of, of what I was doing with him. Became a teacher. I got sick of teaching because you can't make any money. And then moved to Seattle to join the tech industry. Started as an SDR. Worked at three different startups in four years, and then started consulting with Justin Michael, found my way into a Zoom call with Aaron Ross, and then the rest is history. So for those people who don't know who Justin and Aaron are, just give people a little bit of a taste. Yeah, Justin was the subject of a book called Combo Prospecting by Tony Hughes, and then he and Tony collaborated on tech-powered sales together. He was my coach at first and then quickly hired me. Aaron Ross was the sales leader at salesforce.com in the early 2000s, scaled from zero to 100 million and started his own consulting agency called Predictable Revenue. Also published a book called Predictable Revenue that sold, I don't know, something like 200,000 copies. It's considered like the Bible of Silicon Valley. So these are early influences for you. What, what did you learn along the way? Network. <laughs> the network is, is more important than anything else. And you see it all the time because um, I've noticed some influencers and thought leaders out there that don't necessarily have the same skill set or experience that I've developed, yet are very popular and, and people take their word as gospel. And it's because they have strong networks. So it's nothing personal, but everywhere that I went, I did favors for people and I still do it to this day, which actually makes recruiting for me like very, very easy. If somebody I, I've placed more reps than the average recruiter has in the past year, just because I, I know a lot of people i have done a lot of favors for a lot of people. I make introductions. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. But guess what? Even if I make the introduction the rep is really happy that I introduced them. They at least got the chance to interview. So that person's now in my network. And I just do that with everybody that I run into, um, which I, again, I think it's something that a lot of people miss. It makes all the difference. I mean, I, I 
a few years ago, I started setting myself a target of giving two introductions a day by 11 o'clock. And it served me incredibly well because I'm always on the lookout to find good introductions to people. And there are days where I managed to make six, eight, 10, 12 introductions. And I'm not looking for anything back, which is, again, really interesting. That's a big shift uh, since I got older and I'm less needy and desperate. So tell me what you learned in terms of the reality of communicating with enterprises then. Because your experience and the way you talk about it is very different to what you read and hear from the gurus. Yeah, so the one-on-one level is that enterprise people are just people. Like the people that work in these massive accounts that you would like to get into are just people like anybody else. It's it's the same people that work in mid-market accounts or whatever. Mm -hmm. They might have a, a, a nicer car or a BMW with a higher number on it, yep. but they're just people. Um, so they, it, your, your human brain responds the same way and reacts the same way to inputs that anybody else does, whether you work on a garbage truck or you're the VP of risk management at JP Morgan Chase. Those are the titles that I was going after, by the way, the risk management titles at, at yep. huge financial companies like that. Those are the people that I was getting to pay attention to me. So a lot of this game is about how do you get somebody's attention and keep it for long enough for them to talk to you? That That is like, in essence, what setting a B2B sales meeting is. Let me break this down a little bit, because I so often hear and see an ad recruitment ads must have experiences selling into you, blah, 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 uh, and so on. And my experience is I probably need half a dozen conversations in that sector to be able to speak cogently using their language and understand enough to get by. And by the 30th conversation, it's like I've lived there all my life. So experience maybe speeds ramp up, but it doesn't make any impact on performance. Here's what they're looking for. When they say that they want experience in a certain sector or a certain segment, it is the old way of thinking. So before cloud computing, right, before Salesforce.com, where the company has a backline of all the customer information or the, you know, prospecting customer information, the sales rep had that in a spreadsheet and they would go from job to job with it. And the problem for the company was if a sales rep leaves, they take the spreadsheet with them and you have no idea who they were talking to and like what kind of deals they were setting up. So then the sales rep would go to a competitor and just sell to all the same people. So that's what they're looking for. When they say that they want experience in a certain sector is they want somebody that can bring a book of business with them, but it really doesn't exist as as strongly as it did back then. I think a lot of the the requirements that you see on things like that's um, it's, it's an old way of thinking. And there are a lot of very old ways of thinking. So let's look at some of the blind spots that people have when tackling an enterprise account. What do you see people holding on to old attachments and old ways of doing things that are blocking them from being able to see a new path? Yeah, well, the 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 first thing is that, especially in like a mid-market or an SMB context, the typical strategy is to say, say you want to sell to sales or marketing, right? You go grab a bunch of VPs of sales and directors of sales or marketing or whichever, you stay in one lane and you like make a long list of them at different companies and you write messaging for them and then you send it to a thousand people at, at a thousand different companies. Or maybe, maybe 
750 people at a thousand different companies, right? You have one or two titles and then you'll get a couple of people to bite that way. But like that way of thinking like does not work when you instead you have 10 companies that you can get into and there's 200 people at each of those 10 companies that you could talk to. Right. So you've got a list of 2000 people, but there's only 10 companies. And like, where do you start? Are you going to write different messaging for each title that that doesn't really like translate? It's not the same strategy. So you have to do something different. You have to figure out a way to personalize the messaging quickly and move through a list of contacts uh, without spending an arduous amount of time trying to reach out to each of them. So there's a bunch of strategies there, too. How do you identify, out of those 200 people, how do you identify the people that you need to be talking to uh, who can actually mobilize and move the conversation forward? And how do you identify the people who are going to block you? So there's a few different things going on here. One, I'm, I'm at, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Silicon Valley. The Yes, his algorithm was called middle out, right? So you go top down, you go bottom up, and you go middle out. You do all directions all the time. There's two different things that I'm trying to do. One is I'm trying to identify the decision makers and the stakeholders in a particular organization. And the job titles are all obfuscated intentionally. It's like very difficult to figure out who does what. And it's like that on purpose. Like at Facebook, like they're not, I mean, they're not even allowed to tell you what they do because it it would actually just give like too much information to their competitors to figure out like what people are actually doing with their time. Uh, So they make it like this mysterious thing. So you've got a list of 200 people, like who do you go after first? Well, there's a few different things you can do. One, you look at job postings and you try to figure out based on the title, like what are they going to have that person do? The other thing you can do is use Sales Navigator and use Boolean searches. You can do fraud and risk, not credit, right? Because like I don't care about credit risk. I only care about fraud risk. And then that can help you like search through the LinkedIn profiles. But then that's dependent on how much information they put in the LinkedIn profile. You can try to do it by, by job title. It varies so much that like you kind of just have to guess. Look at the job title, look at the job postings, see if you can match those things up. Because oftentimes the HR people in the job postings are like putting internal language on the website. Like in in the the people that are deciding like what the job titles are going to be and trying to obfuscate it don't even really realize that that information is there. So there's a disconnect there. You have to take advantage of that. It feels like very warlike what, what you're trying to do. And then what you're doing is picking like five to eight titles at a time that you think are going to be your decision makers and like put those people in a list for for that account. So you've got a list of 200 that's long over here. And then you go like five to eight deep at a time per account and literally just guessing. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to people that are non-decision makers and trying to just start conversations with them. Like I often start with the sales team and, and see if I can get somebody to help me navigate and tell me information and like come up with a hypothesis. Like, look, I think this person is in charge of this particular function. Does that sound right to you? Do you know anybody that's like involved in this? And they might be able to point you in some kind of a direction. How are you opening those conversations with sales? Are you just talking about their subject area? Are you talking about the struggles that they're facing? Are you trying to bring help? No, that's all bullshit. 
Right. See, I'm just telling them I'm a sales rep and I'm trying to get into this account. Like, right. can you help okay. me do that? <laughs> okay. So you're just asking for help. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. To like sales rep to rep. This is my line all the time. I say from rep to rep, like, look, I'm just trying to get some headway in this account. I have this idea. Like, can you either confirm or deny that Jody Smith is in charge of onboarding there or, or whatever it is that I'm trying to do? Right. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. And once you've started to map that out and you've identified those decision makers, how are you breaking in? Because they must be getting an awful lot of noise, which is they're being protected from by their exec assistants if they're higher up or their spam filter um, if uh, it feels like a sales pitch. How do you break past that, all of that noise? Well, you're never going to get in with the sales pitch. You have a 0% chance of trying to sell them anything. Literally, like, it's not going to happen. There's three things that I look for. So I'm trying to personalize my outreach to a very, very specific degree, though. Like, some people say that the personalization is the reason why the person answers the email. It's not. The reason why they answer it, Relevance. you know, it's relevance. And it's very, very difficult to be relevant with a stranger. So the number one thing that you look for are common connections. So if somebody was trying to get a hold of you, Marcus, for example, and they reached out to me and they said, hey, Patrick, I'm trying to get a hold of Marcus. Like, what do you think is, is the best way to do that? I said, oh, I can introduce you. If I introduce you to somebody, there's a 10 out of 10 chance that you're going to talk. To yeah, them, if you did, right? I would definitely take it. Yeah, because we have a relationship together. That's the first thing I'm trying to do is mind my network for this. Again, go to the networking thing, like mind my network for who do I know that knows anybody on that list of 200 people. If we have a common connection, I don't know if, if you know somebody that works at one of those accounts that I'm going to try to get into, I'm going to put your name in the subject line, right? I'm going to say Marcus plus sapling or whatever. The other side of the plus sign doesn't really matter that much, but what does matter is, is the common connection. And I'm going to try to use that. Like, hey, saw that we're both connected with so-and-so. I'm going to try to at least mention the fact that I know somebody. And first, I'm going to try to get an introduction. So if I can't get the introduction, I'm going to just mention the fact that we both know this person. And the point is to get their attention for long enough to like read your email. And then the rest of what you write is, what are the outcomes that you're trying to help them achieve? Right? Like, hey, sorry, both connected with Marcus. I work with other companies like you. They are able to do X uh, by Y process hoping we can set up some time. There's no sales pitch in there. Nice. See, there, there's no value prop. Like it, it, it's, 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 comes off as literally bullshit when somebody reads it. There's just none of that. It's only outcomes and relevance. How much time um, do you so save by not trying to think about those long-winded sales pitched emails? Oh, my, I mean, it's... Um, uh, well, put it this way. For a whole year, I tried to do like the the long-winded sales pitch where like you're connecting the Buffalo Bills because you saw that they were Buffalo Bills fans on Instagram and the quarterback of the Bills has great vision and you're going to be able to great get great vision with this software that I'm trying to sell you, right? Like this, it's like this, this mantra that you see on LinkedIn. It takes a long time to do it. You have to go and like mind the person's personal interests and then like try to like write a unique story for them in an email that has an actual 98% chance of getting completely deleted 
did and never read once. So it's just, it's like a, an exercise in futility. I spent a whole year doing stuff like that. And what I noticed was that the results were not coming in as described. Like, you know, the, the slogan is, oh, you can do, you can send half the amount of emails and you'll get four times the results. And it's, it's not true. It doesn't really work out that way. If I was having a good day, I could send maybe 30, maybe 50 of those if I worked really hard at it all day. And it maybe one out of 100 I would get in, into a meeting that way. So that and most of the time, meeting every three days from that workload. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most of the time they would take the meeting because they were so impressed with the deep personalization that I did and the story that I crafted, but they weren't going to fucking buy anything. <laughs> they were just taking the meeting because I, I inflated their ego for a little while. So that was like the first thing that I cut. So it's one, like relevant connections, mind that. Uh, two, has the prospect authored anything? Like, like, is there something in social media or in press or in print or something that that person has done? If that's there, you should use it. Like if the person posts on LinkedIn every day, they're going to get like a nice little dopamine hit if you mention the fact that you read their prospect, you read their post. Um, if they're quoted in Forbes, right? Like they have an article that they put out or they were on a podcast. You should go and listen to that and then pull it. Like, especially if it's relevant to the software, right? Like, but that's, that's very, very quick thing that you can do. Like you can listen to the podcast while you're doing other work, see if there's anything in there. You can skip through it, pull a quote out of the middle of it. Hey, at, you know, at 14 minutes and 37 seconds, you said this really resonated with me. This is what I do for companies. Hoping we could find some time to meet. It's a three sentence email. The last thing is uh, work history. A lot of these enterprise people like sort of do the same types of roles at, at different places. Yeah. So you look at their work history and see if that matches up to your logo wall. So like what, what, look at your client list and then decide, does this person have any, has they, have they worked anywhere that I have as a customer currently? So for example, if you used to work at McDonald's and McDonald's is one of my customers, I can say, hey, notice your time at McDonald's. This is what we help them do. Hoping to go over some similar ideas with you. That is a one-line email that sets meetings. It literally, like, that is how I opened some of the biggest accounts in the world. One of the largest banks in on the globe. Start Like, I got conversations started with four different VPs there in parallel with six other accounts that I was working by doing stuff like that. I mean, there's no sales pitch there. Dan Kennedy says this. He says that people buy from people like themselves. So firemen buy from uh, testimonials from firemen. They don't buy from policemen or nurses, testimonials. And the weirdest one of all was uh, uh, horse trainers. And he was selling vitamin B tablets for horses. And he said that American quarter horse trainers will not buy off a testimonial from uh, an Arab or a thoroughbred trainer. Mm -hmm. Only from a quarter horse trainer. That's how niche it becomes. So that social proof is really very important. And again, you're doing your research, but you're doing just enough to be able to create that personal link and you're not pitching. So when they agree to meet, how do you then open it? Because obviously you've got the first hard part done. Now you have to keep their attention. This one's easy. I asked them, why are we here today? <laughs> That's yeah, one of I my know, favorite I'll leave, questions. 
pull up a slide. There's got to be some reason why they met. And and then they'll try to put it back to you and like ask you, you know, they put the quarter in and they want you to dance like a monkey or whatever. And you just have to ask them, you continue to ask them questions. In that discovery call, all you're trying to do is get enough information out of them to take it with you to the next meeting because they're not the only person that's going to help make this decision. Right. Like it's, so you're using like, that and you're building your portfolio of knowledge about the account. Yeah. 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 That's, right. that's why we're here today. See another common sales technique that I use all the time is asking questions. I know the answers to <laughs> why are we here today? Well, that's the reason why we're here today yeah. <laughs> so that I can figure out more information about you so that I can actually get this deal done. Uh, you don't necessarily need to know that that's why we're here, but you're going to actually give me all the information that I need. Okay. And so how are you asking for introductions to others? Is it through the hypothesis or are you using other approaches in order to build that network? Because there was that wonderful story that you told me the last time where you penetrated an enterprise account with 30 meetings in six weeks. Talk to to me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to clarify, the story was there may have been there may have been 30 meetings total involved in this across an array of accounts, across 10 different accounts. So there's probably about three meetings in each of 10 accounts, but it was $6 million in qualified pipeline in six weeks. That's what I was doing, is having a meeting, finding out all the information, and then taking it with me to the next person. Now, one of the ways to get introduced there is to have your story straight when you get to the first meeting. Like, hey, Marcus, I saw John Smith. Looks like he heads up this other department. Do you think that's right? After I've already had the conversation with you, like like we've had the conversation, I got the information that I wanted, have the next two or three people that you want to talk to ready in the chamber and and with a hypothesis about like what they might be doing. Um, And then that person will help. They've already spilled the beans and they realize this. They're caught unaware, right? They're a little bit flat-footed because you just stormed into their office and like mine them for a bunch of information. They know that they've already given this up. So they're just going to send you the, like most likely they're going to send you the next person. The other thing you can do is if you can't get any information out of that guy, you go email John Smith or whoever it is and say, look, I just talked to Marcus. This is what we covered. Was hoping to go over some similar ideas with you. Again, a two-line email, send it, it sets the meeting because you've already talked to one of the, like somebody else inside the internally in the company. They don't want to be left out. Right. Okay. In the world that I occupy and most of my clients occupy, we can play the small game, uh, which is we can be transactional, or we can play the bigger game, which is helping the customer solve the actual problem and play nicely with others. So I'm really curious about how you go about collaborating internally within your own organization, externally with partners and with uh, your customers' teams to help orchestrate or choreograph, if you like, the conversation within the organization so that all the key stakeholders who are evaluating or making the decision are brought together at the right points. Yeah. First thing is to look at the, the chain of events with your team, like with the team, C-level executives included. I would go strike for CEOs all the time. Or another one that you can do, if you can get away with this, if you have a really cool CEO, 
and you can use their LinkedIn profile or at least like script some messaging for them. And then while you're going outbound or you're in these talks with them, have your C-level talk to their C-level and give them all the context that you've already like done all this groundwork to develop. Like, oh, one of my reps, Patrick, is talking with John and Marcus and Sally, and this is what they went over. Uh, hopefully, you and I could connect briefly and, and discuss the viability there. That does wonders. The other thing is, is just trying to figure out, make sure as the rep, like when you've got 10 or 15 of these enterprise accounts that you're trying to go after at the same time, it's very easy to lose track of one or two use cases or some or some that there's potential somewhere that you didn't necessarily uncover. So just having more than one set of eyes to look at it and say like, hey, did you think of this? Did you try to call this title? Did you figure out who does this function? Getting as many eyes on it as possible is pretty important. So again, this is really interesting because historically, we've tended to favor the recruitment of lone wolf individual contributors who don't necessarily play nicely with others. By the sounds of things, kind of team that you've been developing is one that is very cooperative. It doesn't mean that they don't like seeing their name at the top of the leaderboard because they're probably very competitive too. But from the sounds of things, you're encouraging them to share insight and everyone has a voice. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And as far as the leaderboard goes, like you get to just think about what you're measuring and like, does that inspire the right behavior? <laughs> There's probably a lot to unpack there, but... Well, th- th- let's go into it because I think it's important to really focus on it because there's an awful lot of old school leadership and management still in place, coming up to retirement, thankfully, but still there. And uh, many of them have got five to seven years left in them and they can do a lot of damage in that time. So if, if you are talking directly to them, what would you say? I would say that the one of the least important things that you can measure is activity, which completely flies in the face of like the history of measuring a sales team. Uh, you know, how many phone calls did you make? How many emails did you send? Really doesn't serve you very well to, to measure those things. But what does, there's two ingredients. It's, it's almost like, I don't know, oxygen meets friction, you get fire. Like the more net new prospects you can add into some type of a, an outreach sequence or sales loft cadence or whatever software you're using, start reaching out to them. How many net new people did you talk to and across how many accounts were they? And then there's some fidelity. To, are you talking a bilateral flow of communication uh, in any form or an actual telephone or video conversation or face-to-face? So all of those you can continue to increase the fidelity here. It's like, how many did you reach out to? How many did you actually talk to? And then you look at all of those conversion metrics too. So like from completely stone cold to in a meeting to a sales qualified opportunity, right? Like, like, cause those three layers are different things. Like never talked to them before, had a meeting with them, qualified sales opportunity. You look at the, how often are those things converting from one to the other? And then as far as the channels go, like, yeah, you should measure it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. As far as the channels go, like you should, you should be doing everything all the time. A lot of people like to say like, yeah, cold calling's dead. Email's dead. You know, what's dead. Working hard is dead. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, people people are are like completely uh, uh, trying to find something that's easy to do and then have that work and then you know have this like dualistic thinking. It doesn't really work that way. Well, I, um, I'd, I'd go a little bit further. I, I think what's happened is we've sacrificed efficiency. Uh, sorry, we've sacrificed effectiveness for efficiency or yeah. the illusion of efficiency because we yeah. can do more. But like you said, you know, tra- tracking activity, that's not meaningful. We need to track the meaningful metrics that give us indication that, first of all, something what's happening, and also it informs us what we can do if we need to increase or decrease velocity and momentum within uh, the pipeline. Because we also have to factor in, can we fulfill? Because one of the other problems that I see with so many fast-growth companies is that their ability to sell outgrows their ability to deliver. And this is a huge problem because the valuation is based on the wrong metrics because it's focused typically on pipeline. It's focused on net new revenue and new logos. It's not on how happy your customers are. And I'm seeing more and more and more people trying to get away from interactions with salespeople. But those customers who buy without uh, interacting with salespeople tend to churn a lot uh, more frequently. So it's a false economy. So I was fortunate enough to work for a couple of really cool founders that had a pretty decent sense of that, of what their capacity was. And I don't remember what year it was, but it was on October 5th, the CEO walked up to my desk and asked me to start setting meetings for November uh, because they they couldn't <laughs> handle anymore. We're at capacity. So I think that that's, that happens a lot where companies definitely oversell to appease their investors and it doesn't necessarily serve the customer very well. It seems, it, it seems very, very clear to me that the customer is often the last priority in a lot of these, especially these fast-growing tech companies. Well, the, the, the customer and your employees and your partners become forgotten afterthoughts the three groups that you should really be nurturing because in tough times, they're the ones that are going to keep you afloat. And far, far too often, the employees are treated like a commodity that can be burnt through and burnt out. And that's just exploitation. And it's unnecessary. And I think those sorts of companies will struggle in the future. They're already struggling now because people are leaving in their droves. 72% of people in tech are expected to apply for new jobs this year from every department, every job function. That's a lot of people on the move. 40% of salespeople are expected to develop some kind of side hustle, which makes all of them um, potential flight risks. Yeah, I think this is what is interesting to me about the software space, these tech companies, right? The tech industry is only about, I don't know, it's less than 25 years old. If you go back to like early 2000s, like that was the beginning of it. So there's there's not a lot of literature and research and like textbook kind of material about how all this stuff works, but it's also like very, very rich content. Like what you're talking about is um, psychology and sociology really is, is a, a yeah. social science kind of in uh, kind of a study a lot of stuff that i'm talking about is like scientific method how to actually statistically analyze like what your team is doing 
you've got a lot of people that are kind of bean counting and just sort of saying like, oh, I need a hundred dials a day. And then, you know, that people talk that this fallacious math of sales conversation that people have. I know there's a lot of people I respect that talk about it a lot, but they're full of shit because that's not really what, what statistical inferences. But Pat, when, when you do the maths in sales, it doesn't compute because it certainly doesn't serve the shareholder. And what you're condemning these salespeople to do is waste 97 to 99% of their time. I interviewed Chris Beal from Connect and Sell. And uh, from their research, the average SDR gets three minutes out of 480 minutes that you pay them for speaking to the people you pay them to speak to uh, Mm -hmm. every day. What a crashing waste of life. To go back to, I don't know, which channel do you use, right? Like phone call, email, all that. Thinking of it this way, you can you can do this in in any direction you want, but let's just start with email first. I've got a list of, of a bunch of people that I want to talk to. I send them all in email sequence. It's like very carefully crafted. You spend time up front doing that. You do the light personalization on it that I mentioned before, uh, and then just look at it and see like which of those people are engaging with my email content. And I I take those people out and I call them I don't know patch one or group one. And I pull all the mobile numbers, all the direct dial numbers that I can for all those people, and then call them first. Then what am I going to do with the other half? Well, guess what? I'm going to call them too. The people that didn't engage with the email, I'm going to also call them. You know, Ryan Reiser will talk about like find people who pick up the phone. You know, you can have a VA service, phone verify the leads, phone ready leads, or, or whatever. You could separate those into a different group. But no matter what, I'm calling all of the people and I'm emailing all of the people. If I had only done one of those, I'm going to certainly miss something from the pile. Emails dead, cold calling's dead. Like, let's just think about this scientifically. None of and them then, work if you do them badly. And measure all of your conversion metrics. Because look, this is a reporting exercise. It's not necessarily going to guide you on what you should do next. It is interesting to find out like how many people did I call? How many people picked up the phone? If that number starts to look low, well, maybe you should think about calling different people. I mean, at any given time, uh, you're in your addressable market, only 2% Two to three percent. I don't know. People quote different numbers all the time, but it's certainly not more than you know three, maybe four percent at any given time are in an active buying window for your particular product. Meaning, like I sell HR software, people that are looking for new HR software to buy in my addressable market. It's only like two or three percent of those people, but a bunch of them are are experiencing some type of a latent pain that your new technology solves that they didn't know that there was a solution for. And those are the people that you're looking for in outbound sales because the two to 3%, those are the inbound leads. Like those people come to you. The 40% are just sitting at their desks and, and they're, they're doing their job and their shoulder hurts, but it's not bad enough to go to the doctor yet. And you, you call them and you propose that you have a solution for their pain that they're surprised that you knew that they had. Dialing in on like the people that are most likely to be experiencing that type of pain, that is a leadership exercise that should not be a sales rep exercise. Sales rep exercise should be actually executing on the actions, but that's often not what we see. Leadership is over here drawing pictures on the website and like they've got PowerPoints that they're talking to each other about, but they're not figuring out like who are the, mo- who are the people that we're most likely to impact and then providing a list of those types of people to the sales reps that they're paying a bunch of money instead. So it, sounds, just- it sounds to me like someone senior should be building the list 
not the least experienced people that you're shoving on the phones. What a crazy notion. How insane would that be? Yeah. Okay. So what I know a passion project of yours at the moment is how to build uh, an SDR team and what you're doing in order to create those early initiatives. So talk to me about that, because I know that's a topic that's very top of mind for a lot of people at the moment. One of the, the first things that I did at, at Sapling is I, I noticed that the reps were spending at least a couple of days per month, if not a couple of days per week, trying to figure out who they should call. And they were do- doing a lot of deep research on each of these companies to make sure that they were the right fit, whether they had the ATS that we integrate with or whatever. There's a bunch of different things that they were doing, but they were maybe losing anywhere between 10 to 40% of their productivity, just trying to figure out who they should call. So the first thing that I did was I bought a bunch of data. Like I talked to, I've got four, I'm paying four different data providers right now. I had headcount budget uh, that was reallocated to like spend the money on the data and then, and then restructure the comp plan for the SDRs. So instead of hiring more people into the situation, let's actually figure out what the actual size of the addressable market is. Like how many accounts do we have that we can actually sell to right now? Like finding out that number. And then how many does that give me per rep? And then putting that data in front of them. And so when you went through that initial exercise of identifying the the real addressable market, what surprises came out of that research? That in the account segment that we wanted to sell into, so like in the, the mid-market range, there wasn't necessarily as many accounts as we thought with the integrations that we had built at the time, um, which then allowed me to inform like the rest of the of the company. Like, look, if, if we want to actually hit these revenue goals and move upstream, like, these are the integrations that we need to build. It, it uncovered a lot of information about like the product roadmap. So tell me this then, how did that change the way sales and product development uh, partnered up internally? I think it became, it went from a feature-based kind of conversation where like sales is talking to the product team about like, what are the features? Like, what do people want to have? Like, product is asking sales, like what features should we build to now? Like, let's look at the addressable market and grow our TAM because that's the main way that we're going to be able to grow revenue, which is like, those are two completely different conversations. I was having a couple of conversations with some very enlightened uh, sales leaders the last couple of weeks. And they were talking about how they've changed the ramp up period for new SDRs and what they do in their first 90 to 120 days. I'm really curious to hear what you're uh, how you've changed that ramp up period. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ramp period has gone from 90 days to six weeks. The first two weeks, you're just doing all of your regular onboarding paperwork and like figuring out what the product does and getting introduced to the team and like figuring out the schedule and getting your calendar done. But then the next month is like actually doing the work. 90 days seems like an, an eternity for me. Three months in, if you haven't, if you're not producing by then, like I, I don't, I don't know like what you've been doing the whole time. Uh, but within the first month, I'm pretty much getting people ramped up, setting meetings. One of the things that I'm doing is instead of two dedicated inbound reps, 
like taking some of that workload and distributing it across the team because the the newer reps handling those inbound conversations it's a lot easier of a conversation and and they're actually getting the chance to like start talking about the product a little bit more with somebody that's a potential customer like learning what those pain points are and then they have something to fall back on when they actually end up on a cold call from an outbound perspective so like like feeding the newer reps some inbound inbound reps i guess not to make the pun giving them some some chances to have those early conversations yeah, they can practice on live prospects yeah that's one of the things that i did to shorten the ramp time the other thing is like dude you got to just start like making phone calls i mean role playing like i guess it has a place some of the reps like to get together with each other and like do the role playing like it helps them i'm not a big believer in role playing and here's why we can do a role play they'll just do two scenarios like one you have somebody that's doing role playing for a week, trying to get them ready for a conversation. And then I have somebody else in parallel that like started making phone calls and having conversations with actual people at the beginning of the same week with no role playing prep at the end of a month, which person's further along, like the guy that's been having pretend conversations or the one that's been having actual conversations. And <laughs> um, again, I, I'm going to challenge you on that because I think there is, definite room for practice and i don't want my reps necessarily burning through viable leads i definitely want them speaking to prospects early but i want them to have lived the common experiences that they're going to face quickly and i can accelerate that and i can use technology uh, to accelerate that even further by giving them practice moments where i know that they struggle and then they can practice those without the public glare, without worrying about whether they're going to fail, and they only upload it when they're ready. So I think there's a, an argument for both in the same way that if you're just an advocate for one channel or another, I think you're missing out. I think we, we, what we've got to find here is a balance that works for the individual, but isn't too onerous on the management, because yeah. it's a tough job, and you've got to get yeah. the team there. And so often managers are run ragged because they, they're spending their time supervising because there isn't enough time onboarding reps. And then they're having to put out fires and play the hero. So, I mean, feel free to shoot me down. I don't think that it's wrong to do. I just think that in, I don't think it's correct to do it in lieu of actual conversations. I think it's something you can run in parallel. Right? Yeah. You can have okay. those role-playing moments and those practice moments but more important to me on, on my scale, what's more important is having a real conversation, even if you blow it, like do it on some low impact kind of leads, either closed, lost opportunities from the past, you know, small market kind of like smaller size deals that like if you blow it up, it doesn't really hurt us all that much. And then analyzing those calls, actually like watching the film and going back and listening to it with a coach. Like that is like way, way more impactful to me than like pretending to have the conversation. And again, I'd strongly advocate that. And I think reps don't spend anywhere near enough time on their own development. The ones that do fly, the ones that don't, don't. And they struggle because uh, sales is a tough job. It requires you to constantly be evolving because your customers are evolving. They're changing. They're at their tastes are evolving, their needs are changing, where they are in their life cycle varies. 
Um, and you have to be infinitely adaptable as a salesperson. What worked a year ago isn't going to work in a year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, I think just being a student of the game is is really important. And from a leadership perspective, I think one mistake that I had made is I had one one to one meeting set up with each of the reps weekly, and I was kind of alternating or like just kind of feeling it out. Like, should we do an individual call? review or should we just do a check-in and they were really only getting that one 30-minute block with me to do that which i course corrected and said okay i need two 30-minute blocks with each rep one of them is going to be a call review session and then the other one is going to be a check-in where i go over all the how are you doing like where do you want to go with your career what do we need to do to help you get there like that all happens in the check-in and then the call review is like you better come prepared and bring a call that you want to listen to or i'm going to go and find one and if you don't have one we're going to have a problem there too and then just analyzing it and then what i do is one of those will be really illustrative really instructive and then i'll take that in, with the rep's permission and then we'll listen to it as a group in a group training later on in the week Again, this is like very hands-on active leadership that I'm trying to do that I haven't seen everywhere that I've. You very rarely do because most managers are so heavily tied up, putting out fires, reporting, tied up in meetings, being the hero salesperson, trying to recover from uh, last quarter and make up the difference, fill in vacancies, uh, recruit and everything else. And they don't spend anywhere near enough time on the stuff that actually matters as a manager, which is coaching your people, which you're spending a lot of time on, training and development, career pathing, building the bench, building systems and processes, and create, building the network, developing yourself. Yeah, these are things that the managers other, need to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I've been able to do really gracefully is uh, recruit. So like, I'm pulling from the network that I've built over the last five years if I need to make a hire, if I have to swap somebody out or if somebody leaves and I need it, like I've been able to pull in like at least three different reps just at will. I didn't have to call a recruiting agency and roll the dice. Like these are people that I know that like either done favors for them or they know somebody that has done favors for me or something like that. And I'm, I'm just pulling from the network. So like I actually know the person before I end up paying them to work for me just wanted to highlight the importance of networking even further, right? Like, a, like the, the, the best VP of sales is a recruiter in addition to a sales leader, somebody that can like pull in the talent. Um, so that's, that's a skill that I started working on, you know, years ago. I've made nine placements in the last 12 months for people in my network, which is slightly frustrating because now these are nine people that I can't recruit for my own Again, I'm delighted to have done it. It was the right thing to do for them and for the companies that they've gone to, and they're absolutely knocking out the park. So on that note, we've hit the top of the hour. What would you recommend people watch or listen to uh, consume in order to understand how the market is changing and how, as a salesperson, they need to modify and adapt their approach? Oh, as far as the adaptability question goes, Tech-powered sales is probably a good place to start. Justin Michael and Tony Hughes, um, the, their latest work. And the other thing I would say is to like be active on some of the, the, the quote-unquote dark social channels. Find your way into those WhatsApp groups. Talk to other reps that are doing it. Go to meetups. Like Find people in the network uh, that can tell you what's going on. What are you seeing? Connect with other reps from other companies and, and literally just start like building those groups on your own. 
that's probably the best way to keep your ear to the ground. I want to reinforce that. Uh, as a salesperson, you need to be part marketer, you need to be part community builder, and you need to get good at learning how to write. You've got to be good on the phone, in person as well. But written skills are going to become more and more important. And you need to be able to adapt to video. Um, so again, get out there, practice this stuff, speak to people who are doing it. And if you're one of those dinosaurs out there uh, who thinks that you can get away without being able to use social media, particularly LinkedIn, you're in for a very, very nasty awakening. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. LinkedIn, I think Twitter is getting bigger. Also, just knowing your way around social media, even TikTok, people talk about, people laugh about TikTok a lot, but guess what? There's a billion viewers and the reach there is incredible. Now, very quick aside, my wife is a teacher, a high school teacher. So she's teaching kids that are, you know, they're in their early teens or whatever. And um, they were singing a, a, a Biggie Small song. Biggie, 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 can't you see? And, and my wife is, this is from the early 90s, this song. My wife is like, how do you guys know this song? And they go, TikTok. So if, if that's not illustrative in terms of the power of social media and like what people are actually doing with it, like the, the rate at which they're consuming it, I think you're definitely going to be left out in the cold. Excellent. Pat, how can people get hold of you? LinkedIn, call my cell phone. My cell phone number is on my LinkedIn profile and shoot me a text message. Seriously, if, if you wanted to get a hold of me for something, that is the best channel there is. The LinkedIn DMs is going to go to nowhere and like, please don't email me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Pat Joyce, thank you. Thanks very much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who might find it useful too. And if you feel the urge, go to Apple Podcasts and leave an honest review. If you want to give me one star and slate the, the podcast, feel free. Five stars, happy with that too, uh, and anywhere in between. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn because I will respond but equally text on my mobile, uh, which is on my LinkedIn profile. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.